This morning I want to continue with the exploration of the theme of uh, practicing with challenges. And this came out of uh, some continuity with uh, a series of talks in January and February on the theme of developing what I was calling heart practices in difficult times, including forgiveness and compassion. And so last time I talked generally about the approach we take to work skillfully with challenging situations. And in the last part of the talk last time, I started to talk in uh, specific ways about how to work with uh, thoughts and emotions, particularly challenging thoughts and emotions. So I wanted to today very briefly review some of what we explored last time, some of the general principles of how to work with uh, challenging experiences, and then go to some general approaches on how we work with uh, thoughts and emotions in our practice, whether they are challenging or not, whether they're just everyday thoughts and emotions that aren't particularly challenging or whether they are also challenging. And then um, the last half of the talk, my intention is to be specific and give some examples by talking about two very particular kinds of challenging thoughts and emotions. I'll first talk about in more detail about the judgmental mind and how we work with that. And then secondly, partly by popular request, talk about anger and how we might work skillfully. Again, it'll be, uh, these will be brief treatments. Uh, Both of those topics we could take a whole day, and sometimes at Spirit Rock we do take whole days on the theme of the judgmental mind or on different aspects, different aspects of anger. Last time I particularly focused on a way of understanding our practice, our commitment to become more wise, more mindful, more compassionate, more generous, more courageous. And right at the heart of that sense of practice, if we use that word, is a commitment and an aspiration to respond rather than to react to experience. And so last time I talked about developing a sense of ability to respond or in a sense response ability as being at the center of what we're doing. Concretely that means the capacity to know the different ways that we are reactive, that we are the way that we, the ways that we get triggered, the ways that we follow old patterns of thought, emotion, body, some of them coming from family, some of them come from the society, some from our own personal histories, that we increasingly study in our practice how we become reactive or triggered. And by the term reactive, I'm particularly referring to ways that we're somewhat on automatic. Or from the point of view of the brain, we might say, that there are old neural pathways, there is a stimulus, and we just go down that neural pathway 
somewhat automatically. It's a way of talking about it you know, through contemporary science of the brain. And with that reactivity, we actually are not really free. We're at the mercy of those patterns, those reactions, those conditions. Some of them may be good patterns. Some of them may be negative patterns. I can have a lot of reactivity and actually uh, maybe do something that's healthy. I may have tremendous self-judgment and be very reactive when I eat too many cookies. And I may judge myself, and that may lead to me not eating so many cookies, which may be a good or a bad thing, but, and so forth. Um, but it's the reactivity that, we're, that in, the, uh, in this teaching is really the issue. And we develop increasingly the ability to, to be with the situation and, and, in a sense, be fresh with the situation and respond rather than react. Is this wise? What is a wise way to respond. Um, increasingly, this becomes intuitive, but it's linked with a kind of inner freedom. The ability to not simply be knocked around and pushed and pulled by our conditioning, where I like this, I don't like this. I think that talking about the capacity to respond out of increasingly greater freedom, rather than to react, is, we might say, a contemporary, down-to-earth, secular way of talking about the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. I think it's essentially the same core teaching, tremendously simplified in a way which I think can be very helpful. If you have a commitment, if we have a commitment to responding each moment, that is really following, I think, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which are about the fact that there's suffering, and I think we could actually unpack suffering in the Buddhist tradition as essentially reactivity. It's essentially reacting, and whether it's grabbing hold of something or pushing away something, being on automatic, I think that is really a way of unpacking it. Last time I did, I, I, I made that point, especially teaching the, uh, giving the teaching of the two arrows, where, where there is a sense of reacting because there is, we're shot by an arrow, there's some pain and so forth. And so, and then the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is that there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, which is that there's some kind of compulsive reaction, is the way I would translate it. And then the, set, the third and fourth Noble Truths are about that there is a path, essentially, to decondition ourselves, to work through our reactivity and come to greater freedom and ultimately come to a very deep freedom. And so this is, this is a very down-to-earth way. You can go into a situation and just say, how can I best respond to this challenging situation and not react? And that can be uh, a, 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 kind of like a one-liner to help one in situations. I think we need all sorts of one-liners. <laughs> you know, go into a challenging meeting. What's my one-liner guidance, right? You know, I can't just remember, you know, three pages of complex teachings and theory, right? I need sometimes one-liner, let me, you know, so, for example, one that I often give for skillful speech, we condense everything, is stay in your body and stay in your heart, right? For, and anyway, I think there's, uh, I think we probably have an emerging wisdom culture which is made up of a lot of one-liners. <laughs> so, 
And there are teachings that do that. Some of you may know the, the Tibetan Lojong teachings. Uh, Norman Fisher, who's local, just wrote a book, a, a Zen teacher writing about the Tibetan tradition of Lojong teachings are a bunch of one-liners, which are very, very useful in daily life, where we, where we, need, you know, where we need that one, one line. So we talked about that a lot and also, I think, pointed to the way that this capacity to develop uh, responsiveness rather than to react is something that's tremendously valuable personally, but it's really at the center of a culture of peace and skillful work with conflict. Developing the capacity to respond rather than react is right at the heart, I think, of peacemaking, of being more skillful with conflict. Uh, we could call that in different, with different words. I actually, yesterday, I was part of a, um, a conference call where someone gave an outline of a very powerful way to work with trauma. And one of the core skills was what was called emotional intelligence, which is part of the language that we might use as a basic capacity. Can I skillfully be with challenging emotions, let's say challenging thoughts? And it's right at the heart that when we have a culture where people are very skillful with being able to respond rather than react, we have a culture that could be the basis for peace. Arguably, the conflicts in the world are there because people become reactive. We don't have, that culture doesn't have that capacity, or maybe some people have that capacity, but the leaders don't, or whatever. So it's, what we're doing here is very crucial, not just for our own personal and interpersonal lives, but also for developing a culture of uh, skillful work with differences, conflicts, and so forth. We began last time to talk about how to bring that sense of responsiveness to the area of thoughts and emotions. And I gave a number of different um, suggestions for how to do that. Uh, I talked generally about three ways of working uh, with thoughts and emotions, including challenging ones. And those three ways were first, um, having a number of different tools that help one to come back to balance when one is out of balance. And we actually, I remember we took kind of a survey of what helps members of our, uh, of our uh, group here come back to balance. And we named a lot of things. We could, we could talk about how we come back to balance with different uh, more physical practices take a walk, get out of the house, right? Um, do a practice like qigong or tai chi or yoga or vigorous walking or exercise. I gave the example of how um, some years ago I was, uh, I was going to uh, faculty meetings which were once a month for six or eight hours and I found that I could process and come back to balance after these six or eight hour meetings much better by going swimming for half an hour than by meditating, <laughs> right? Because there's something, there, there are complex ways in which the reactivity and the difficulties are wired into our nervous system, 
right? And it's actually quite complex, right? How do thoughts and emotions, our nervous system, all work together? We actually, I think, are still finding out a lot of these things. But they're, but uh, coming back to balance, having a lot of ways to come back to balance on a physical or somatic or bodily, bodily level, very, very crucial. Then different ways to come back to balance more emotionally. And I particularly point to the importance of what we call heart practices. The practices like loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness, that if done regularly can be uh, quite crucial, or if that we have them developed, um, they can be very helpful for coming back to balance, coming out of reactivity. I often, I mentioned this uh, some months ago, I often, for example, if I'm driving and someone cuts me off, I do um, a one-minute forgiveness practice. Mm, okay, if I have hurt you in word, thought, or deed, <laughs> uh, may I be forgiven if you have hurt me, especially by cutting me off. <laughs> I freely forgive you. And uh, as a sincere practice, you know, where we actually, and it, it results in touch, typically in touching some of the pain of the situation, but it also can see where am I reactive, where am I saying, rah, 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 that person. And last week I gave the technique that I learned from Carolyn Casey of the harumphitude composter. Do you remember that? Where, where if, I, if I get in a situation where I say harumph, that I can actually compost it by, um, by knowing that I'm reactive and, and then coming back to balance by saying something, may you, may you continue to develop wise driving habits and be able to use your skill to cut in and out of traffic in emergencies <laughs> or whatever, something like that, you know, where we, where we would um, actually point to the positive, recognize the other one as a sincere human being and not get stuck in the reaction. So all sorts of emotional ways. The heart practice is very beautiful and I always, you know, I typically recommend having a heart practice that one does 10 minutes a day that you can call on. When the heart practices are well developed, you can call, call on them. If you don't practice them, they won't be there when you need them. You have to practice them. And then, you know, the archetypal example of the middle of the night, one gets down on oneself or is in distress over something that happened, and you can go to a heart practice. So first set of tools, and there are all sorts of other tools we can have, talking with a friend, you know, uh, sometimes changing the environment, coming to Spirit Rock, um, being with a, a mentor, uh, a wise one who can say, oh, yes, I understand so much, you know, oh, yes, that's a hard situation, oh, my, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's that sense uh, often of being heard. Uh, a lot of the pain of reactivity is about the isolation, often. So, so first, having that set of tools. Secondly, uh, mindfulness, a core tool, and we talked last time about one type of technique generally for working with thoughts and emotions uh, that was developed, I believe, by Michelle McDonald and is, ha, goes under the acronym RAIN, uh, uh, a, a four-step process where we first recognize, then we accept, then we investigate, and we do so with non-identification or not taking it personally. So we, with any given emotion, when it's there, we first recognize it. This is what we did in the guided practice as a form of naming. We name what's there, 
crucial as a starting point. If we don't name what's there, it's, we can often get wrapped up in things. We don't know what's happening. So we have to name. Even in the middle of very difficult emotions or thoughts, just naming it essentially breaks the monopoly of the automatic reactive mind. Even if it doesn't feel like much, it's actually pretty significant. You're, you're in a, having a difficult thought train of reactivity, something difficult happened, and it's just going on and on, and you say, I'm angry, or I'm irritated. Just to name it actually cuts through some, and it helps. Right? It's, and, and so the recognition crucial, the acceptance, in the sense this is really present, very, very crucial as well for, um, for helping. Again, not acceptance in the sense of this is good, or this should continue, but yes, this is really here. I don't have to pretend it's not. I don't have to resist it. It's really here. And then the I stands for investigation, going into and exploring, much as we did in the guided practice. I'm feeling um, anger. Let me just be with it. What's it like in the body, in the uh, emotional energy? What kind of thoughts are occurring? And to really track this and to become an expert on one's own patterns, on one's own uh, um, experiences, really, of, of the way that anger manifests in me, the way that joy manifests in me, the way that judgmental mind manifests in me. And then the N stands for not taking it so personally, not identifying, being like a naturalist. Oh, look at this. Look at that interesting self-blaming, just developing so inter- so fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's something about, can I sit back and not take it quite so personally? This is one of the glories of mindfulness, you know, that we can actually study it and be with it. We don't do so in the spirit of repressing it or pretending that it's actually not happening to me, but we do so with the point of view, let me just look at this, let me just study this, let me explore this. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I, we sometimes like to quote an American monk in the Thai forest tradition, Achan Sumedho, who he says, oh, it's like this. Oh, look at that. Uh, joy, oh, it's like this. Oh, despair, oh, yes, it's like this. Right? And he holds up his hand, oh, it's like this. So we can explore. That's the end, not taking it quite so personally. And then the third general way of working with thoughts and emotions is having uh, what we might call a tool, toolbox of skillful means to work with it. And then we could actually go into a lot of detail on that. Now maybe I'll bring out some of that in talking about judgments and anger. So we could, ha- we could sometimes uh, have recourse to our wisdom and saying, okay, how would I look at this? from the point of view of the Four Noble Truths? Or where is there, is there, am I getting caught? Is there suffering? Am I caught somewhere? How can I release it? That might be a skillful means in that, in that situation. Or we might use, uh, we might say, oh, I should use, uh, it'd really be good to do loving kindness now, or compassion, or we might go to back to some of those balancing tools. Or we might also, as we, investigate our emotions more, particularly with difficult ones, and I'll get to this with judgments and anger, we can actually keep on going deeper and see what's beneath the surface. If we stay with certain emotions, there often are layers beneath them. 
And we can actually, I'll, I'll bring this out in talking about judgments and emotions, particularly our strong patterns. If we stay with them and investigate them, we can go quite deeply. In fact, much more deeply than if they weren't there. That's what I have found particularly with judgments and anger. And I'll, maybe I'll bring that out. So the third area is just this, this, uh, this toolbox. So let me talk the rest of the time about two particularly challenging kinds of thoughts and emotions. And they're really complexes of thoughts and emotions. The first we might call judgments in the sense of judgmental mind. And the second is anger. Okay? Ready? Okay. Okay. Now, one of the interesting things about these two very challenging, really thought-emotion complexes is that they're quite confusing, that we're quite confused about them. Both judgments and anger are uh, experiences that there are all sorts of different views about, and there's a lot of confusion. So, for example, I typically uh, talk about, I like to talk about judgmental mind as um, some a, a quality of thinking that's reactive. So we might take as examples of judgmental mind, it could be a self-judgment, like, you know, most radically or most deeply, they could be a judgment of, uh, there's something wrong with me, or I'm not okay, which is often at a deep level when we trace it for some of us, or it could be just a, a really harsh judgment. Um, I messed up on that, on what I did, you know, and we might really get down on ourselves and go into a f- what we could call a funk or a fog or just being caught in a cloud of judgment. Uh, so there could be self-judgment about something that happened. Sometimes it can be, uh, can go right into a very deep sense of um, judging oneself negatively or harshly. I think we can also judge ourselves in a reactive way positively, but I mostly focus, I mostly focus on the negative. That's where the most obvious difficulty or suffering is. We can judge others. You know, my boss is so, right? Or uh, we can judge political figures, public figures, which is a favorite uh, pastime for many people. You know, so I can say, oh, those blankety-blanks are just so messed up on the immigration issue, right? And I can feel, and the hallmark of the judgment is that there's some reactivity. There's some way that I am, um, um, what, having uh, almost like, often an automatic response, often repetitive. We can know something that's reactive often in the form of judgment because it's repetitive. Do you notice that with your own self-judgments or judgments of others? They keep on coming. It's not like, you know, one announcement would be enough. Right? right? They keep on coming. <laughs> okay, heard that. Okay, that's enough. Thank you. Right? We don't, they, don't, they don't work like that. They just keep on repeating over and over and over again, right? Um, uh, about someone else, uh, about uh, ourselves, and they, um, what's tricky about and what's confusing about judgments is that they um, often have a significant degree of truth. I may be noticing things about my boss or about a politician that actually there's a great amount of validity. 
And there's something internally that happens with a judgmental mind where it says, see, I've got some truth. Therefore, whatever I say is okay. Hmm. It's something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky internal logic, right, for, for judgments. And so, um, you know, and, and we, we look for that reactive quality or the charge, the emotional charge. And yet we can recognize that there's some there often and typically is some degree of truth to what's being said, which makes it very confusing internally, right? And so uh, I often define judgments as some kind of observation or discernment or noticing which gets mixed up with reactivity. And the task of transforming judgments is to find ways to separate out the reactivity from the insider, the discernment, and use the insider discernment for the purposes of compassionate action. It's a short way to talk about it. So I might, you know, if I'm an activist, I may be very judgmental about what's negative about the other side. And if I'm going to be, if I'm judgmental, arguably I would be actually not less, I would be much less effective. And I would often, most likely, typically get into all sorts of arguments with my fellow activists, which is very common, where the judgmental mind is there. And I've done workshops on judgments for activists, and they say this is a huge problem, right? And so, and yet there can be insight into injustice, into a problem. When it gets mixed up with reactivity, it tends to get somewhat poisoned. And so, how do we separate out the reactivity from the discernment and use the discernment wisely? That's the direction. So, um, what I have found useful in transforming judgments are... um, a set of practices and tools that really, in a way, parallel that sense of tools to balance, mindfulness, and then other skillful means, that kind of threefold set of resources. So we would first, when I work with people with judgments, first of all, I say, really notice the judgments. Bring out the mindfulness. Start tracking them when they're there, which can be a little shocking because we see, oh my God, I'm a judgment machine. A lot of people who start working with judgments say, oh my God, there's so many of them. And so I often give some further guidance which says, count as a judgment the judgment that there are a lot of judgments. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't notice that and you'll start judging yourself for how, much, how many judgments there are. Right? So, but we start noticing, we start noticing when they're there and that can be a little bit shocking when we first look there. That judgmental mind is very, very prevalent in our society. You know, um, so we start studying. We start also being with it when it's stronger. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the mind? We stay with it. We explore it. So you could do this. You notice yourself judgmental, whatever, towards a driver, towards a partner. Can you, in your meditation, just stay with it? Sometimes it can be valuable to bring it up in your meditation and say, okay, what's this like? What's happening? Even to deliberately explore it, deliberately bring it up can be valuable. And then we also would use a set of um, heart practices like loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness can be tremendously valuable for working with and working through the judgmental mind. What I have found is that ultimately our judgments come out of some pain that's not acknowledged or not processed. You know, so I may have pain about some political situation. 
which is actually maybe anger, maybe grief, and it often can go into judgment, and I actually am not in touch with the emotions. So some of what can happen in the work with judgments is I see what's beneath the surface. I actually touch, and, and both judgments and anger, when we're mindful, we sometimes see what's connected with them or what's beneath the surface. It's what can happen when we stay with challenging emotions. We'll see, oh, oh, there's something else there. Actually, there's a lot of anger here. And sometimes when we stay with the anger and bring um, compassion to it and work with it, and this is what I have found, and really stay with the painful emotion or the pain beneath the judgment, the judgment will tend to dry up. And this is one way of freeing up the discernment so we can use it wisely. As long as the emotion is not processed, we'll continue to judge. As long as the pain driving a judgment is not processed, we'll continue to be reactive. And ultimately, what I found is we can actually use mindfulness and skillful means to take judgmental mind to go actually very, very deeply, because a lot of our deeper judgments are at the very heart of our sense of self. And when we work through those, we actually can open up to uh, a profound sense of compassion and freedom and go beyond and really have insight into some of the very core structures of self which limit us and separate us from others, which are generally just up, you know, uh, almost like manipulating us because they're unconscious. Do you know that some from some aspects that you've explored? That when we go, and I have found judgment to be an amazing way to go beneath the surface and see uh, programs that have been running us for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. And so the, this is where ultimately the deep work with emotions can be profoundly transformative when we stay with it and use these tools. Okay, having taken care of judgmental mind, anger. But what I'm hoping to suggest is that, that this, there are these common uh, approaches that we can take to challenging emotions. Finding balance, having a lot of ways to come back to balance, mindfully exploring and going quite deeply, and then having other skillful means that help us to look more deeply, to open up. You know, with judgments, for example, we use a lot of different practices that help us go beneath the surface, help us to see sometimes even what are old core beliefs that are running us. It's possible to open up to that and see those. Anger is also extremely confusing for a lot of people. It's a very, for many people, it's a confusing emotion. Um, there was a book by Carol Tavris, a psychologist, I believe, who started the book by saying, anger may be the most misunderstood emotion in Western culture. And you can see why it would be uh, confusing just on the level of looking at some of the old cultural texts. I think it's also confusing in other cultures. I'll talk in a moment about what we find with uh, Buddhist tradition and even some of the language, uh, some of the words used in the Asian languages. Um, But I know that for us as uh, contemporary practitioners, there's tremendous confusion about anger. Think of the fact 
that um, if you look both to the Jewish uh, Bible or the Christian Bible, you'll find conflicting understandings of anger or the Christian, Jewish and Christian tradition. You'll find in Jewish tradition, anger is seen as a great problem, but then you have in the text, you have, guess who gets angry? God gets angry. My God, but you have, in the text it says anger is bad, but God gets angry. The prophets get angry. What, how do I make sense of this? What's going on? You know, there's a, uh, you know, same thing in the Christian tradition, right? Anger is one of the seven deadly sins. But who else gets angry in the Christian Bible? Jesus gets angry. Goes into the, goes into the temple and throws out the money changers, right? And there's a kind of, uh, almost like a righteous wrath, right? Right? And it's very confusing. Anger is often a fuel for social change movements, right? And yet you have the sense that anger can be incredibly destructive. So it's a very, do you get a sense of the confusion? There's cultural confusion there, but then it gets worse. (laughs) Then we can add to that by saying we get from Buddhist tradition often a translation of some of the terms in the Asian languages, particularly I know Pali and Sanskrit, but I think also I've seen that, I think it's in Tibetan as well, where it seems like the words which are translated as anger make it seem like anger is entirely something negative. And that a good meditator wouldn't get angry. Have you heard that? Have you ever felt that message? And it gets very, it can get very confusing. Some of it's about the actual terms. I think they are the terms for uh, what in the uh, Pali and Sanskrit language are labeled as uh, kalesas. Uh, Kalesa in Pali, kalesa in uh, Sanskrit, which is sometimes translated as defilement. And it refers to greed, hatred, and delusion, which are seen as root negative sources of suffering, right? And often the word that's sometimes translated as hatred is sometimes translated as anger. And you have a sense sometimes that anger is one of these root defilements. I think that's a misunderstanding because the cultural connotations of words that like uh, the word that's for hatred is dosa and the cultural connotations of those are entirely negative. Whereas in Western languages, the word that in various languages that we have in English as anger, as I suggested, has different connotations. A a mother can get angry at a child for running into the street, and that is connected with love, and it's not entirely negative, right? And yet we have, we get a sense often that anger, as it comes through the translations, of Buddhism is entirely negative, and it gets it gets further confused by the fact that a lot of meditators are introverts and don't want to deal with anger. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> you know, so it's um, you can see that it's a lot of confusion, right? So, okay, so that's that's there even before we do anything like mindfulness of anger, right? So, how to work with? Um, how to work with uh, anger. Using the same tools. I think, first of all, we want to find ways if there's anger to the point where we can't be balanced, we use all these other tools. 
that we've named. We might use heart practices. We might do something physical to come back to balance so we can actually not be reactive. Something very valuable in terms of working with anger is to make a distinction between the experience of anger and what we do with it, right? How we, how we act. And so often if we're really reactive and filled with anger, it can be very skillful to say, I will not act when I'm in this state. Tremendously valuable, right? I will, I will maybe I make a commitment to coming back, but as long as I'm very, very reactive, I will not do anything significant and I may pull back from action. It's true really with any, any, any difficult thought or emotion where we're at the place of not really being balanced. So very, very crucial. And then we can use all those different tools to come back to balance, talk with a friend, do a heart practice, have compassion for, for self, do something physical, you know, uh, do some exercise, work with the impact of the anger on one's system, because anger has a, can have a profound effect on one's own um, nervous system, one's own emotions, hormones get secreted, right? It's quite complex, right? So that's the first way to respond. Secondly, to be uh, mindful with anger, to really be able to stay with the anger. And this can be tremendously illuminating. Um, I've sometimes talked about my 10-day anger retreat. Right? 18 hours a day, Donald was angry for 10 days, and I practiced mindfulness the whole time. And I actually, one of the reasons I brought my book out is that I, I have a whole chapter in anger, and I tell my story. <laughs> and what it was, it was, it's much like uh, judgment. It was fascinating to have sustained mindfulness of anger. I had never done that before. You know, and to have the, I, you know, I won't go so much into the story of why I was angry for 10 days in a row. It didn't really end. It just kept on going. And I've never had an experience like that before or after. But for whatever reason, there was anger there. And sometimes in meditation, we have the benefit of having focus on a single difficult emotion. I've had fear retreats, anger retreats, judgment retreats. Also very good retreats, so to speak. Good, so-called. <laughs> you know, bliss retreats. Yes. So just for anyone who's relatively new, don't... There's bliss. <laughs> There's happiness and so forth. So, um, but it was fascinating to be able to be mindful and stay with it. I had very good guidance. I was working with Jack Kornfield at the time, and he gave me a number of uh, suggestions. You know, but I was able to, for example, really be with anger in the body and just feel, oh, look at that, there's heat. Oh, and there were, it was a tremendous variety. You could imagine over 10 days, sometimes there was nausea. Sometimes there was a lot of heat and fire. You know, sometimes I felt strong. Sometimes I felt weak, right? And just to notice it and to go with it was very, very crucial. Um, I could watch the thoughts. You know, I could watch the, um, what are the thoughts? What are the storylines I'm coming up with in terms of anger? How do I get caught in them? And then what was also very interesting, this is where I had some guidance, was to stay with the emotion and see sometimes how it shifts. 
Because what's very true of our emotional lives, and I think of our whole complex of thoughts and emotions, is that everything is interwoven. It's not like anger is a separate compartment of, the, of our being or of our brain. And so when I would stay with anger and really stay with it, sometimes I would notice it shifting to sadness. Because the content of my anger at that time was, it was actually related to being very angry and judgmental and negative that the retreats didn't have more to do with daily life. And they were treating us as if we were monks and nuns, but we're not. That was my content. And I had gone to many retreats in the past, and you know, kind of, maybe I had that idea, but it never really had any impact in terms of going anywhere with it. So that was my content. So I could sometimes be with anger, and then I would say, you know, then I'd go to sadness. Oh, I think I have something important to say, and I don't know where my voice can be. Oh, I'm sad about that. I feel isolated or whatever, you know. And then sometimes I would stay with the sadness and just stay with it and be with it. And sometimes that would give way to love. Oh, I really care about this community. It's really important for me that we really have uh, this practice be part of an integrated life. Oh, that's really crucial. And I could feel the care and the love. And you can see that that was a beautiful place to act out of, right? And if I had just stayed with the reactive anger, where would that have gone? But when I could actually stay with it and feel the sadness and go into it and then feel the love, at that point the anger wasn't there and I could actually uh, respond. If I could stay in touch with the love, I could respond out of love. This is actually quite parallel to some, someone like Martin Luther King, you know, who he said the work of social movements is the constructive use of anger. And you could see how he would transform the anger, but the, we, he would get to that place of care and love, right, as a way to respond to something. So that was fascinating, how, how I would stay with it, and there would be this increasingly uh, opening up to other aspects. You know, it wasn't like just some straight sh- movement like that. It was all sorts of other things happening. You know, there'd be, I got to see there would be all sorts of forms of anger. Sometimes my anger was petty. Sometimes it was clearly connected with love. Sometimes it wasn't. I, I mentioned how sometimes I would find myself in the form of a, like a, a, a Jewish prophet. And I would sit there on my cushion saying, you may take this path that you're taking, but if you take it, it will lead to no good. Come to your senses or cosmic wrath will get your better. <laughs> something, like, I mean, something like that. I, it's an you know, interesting place to be, but sometimes I would find that kind of cosmic, cosmic, r- prophetic, wrathful anger being there. And it was, like I say, I had to be a little careful with that energy. That you know, We know from history that that could be a little dangerous at times, right? But it was there. It was, I noticed that there. So that was very interesting. So... So different, different skillful means, you know, that, and we can, again, talk about all sorts of skillful means, and maybe I need to take a whole hour or a whole session with anger. I don't know if you would like that or if you would be angry if I did that. <laughs> um, but um, I want to open things up in a moment, but the, the point here is that we can use these three ways of working with challenging emotions. Find ways to come back to balance, 
use the mindfulness to explore and then have different skillful means. And in case of anger, it would be maybe not to act immediately or take some time. Or there's also a lot of things maybe we'll come to in, in next month on how to be skillful with our language um, when we're talking about, when we're exploring anger. Maybe to finish the, the talk, This is a beautiful poem by Rilke. I don't think I've given this recently. This is, um, this is about the challenge, accepting the challenge to be with what's difficult. This is from uh, his fifth sonnet. You who let yourselves feel, enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins behind you. Blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins, you are the bow that shoots the arrows, and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth, for heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourselves to the air, to what you cannot hold. No questions or reflections of any kind? Observations? When you spoke about anger, you spoke about dealing with our own anger. But the other side of it is the one that I have more difficulty with, and that is what to do when anger is directed at you. What to do when anger comes towards oneself. Yeah, we're, we're, with that, we're, I didn't uh, so far go so much into challenges in interpersonal situations and working with other people's anger. Um, and there's a lot, uh, tremendous amount that could be said. And I think I, I'll probably go into more depth in that in future sessions. But to, right now to say, first of all, if we've explored our own anger, in some depth, there'll be more of a tendency to know where the other person is at and probably less of a tendency to be reactive from someone else's anger. Right? So the, the short answer is you want to work with your own mind and your, your response ability with someone else's anger. So what's going to help with that? Having explored your own anger is going to help tremendously because it would make more likely uh, empathy. So we'd also have to look at all, I mean, first of all, we want to, you know, uh, take care of ourselves, right? I mean, assuming, uh, you know, we want to, um, we may at times, if the anger is such that we don't want to be present with it, that it's not okay, then we might need to set boundaries at times. You know, it depends on the quality of the anger. Um, 
it can be, uh, to know our own angers and having worked with it is going to be crucial. Is it possible to be non-reactive with someone else's anger? What's going to help with that? Knowing our own anger is going to help. Saying, oh, I know that energy. Oh, here's what I do with mine. And have me, <laughs> not to say that to the person, I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that. <laughs> Go listen to that Dharma Seed talk from, from July 16th, 2014, and, and then come back and talk with me about your issue. <laughs> right. um, but how do we, um, uh, we, we get into uh, actually other concerns, like how do we, but the, the key point is how can I be non-reactive with someone else's anger coming towards me? And I think it actually points to some further skills that we could talk about. So, so the first thing would be to really check in, what's happening with me? Am I becoming reactive? And that's hard in the moment. A lot of times anger comes like an ambush, right? And it's really hard to... Okay. I mean, it's enough just to take care of ourselves a little bit, right? Or, you know, and it's a very, uh, it's helpful to, to remember uh, what we were talking about last time, that we practice in lower degree of difficulty situations. Certain kinds of anger coming right at me with strength would be nines or tens on the scale of ten. So I would say practice with someone at who you know, who offers you minor irritation. Seriously, practice with that. You know, what do you do when someone comes at you with some irritation? Or maybe practice with a child who's really angry at you. Right? What do you do there? Probably there, you may be less reactive. You tend to be empathic. Right? You tend to say, oh, what's this person angry about? Let me feel that. And you'd come, you'd come from a non-defensive place, right? a non-reactive place. So practice with lower degree of difficulties and remember that the higher degree of difficulties, you know, we, it, it's kind of an extreme situation. Right? And so it takes a lot of practice to be able to be skillful in the moment. Ultimately we want to, how can I be non-reactive when something difficult is coming to me? And there are ways to do it, uh, you know, there are ways to work with it on a bodily level, like to ground oneself, you know, Martial art techniques are very are often used for something like that. I've seen one person who had anger coming towards him as a speaker. I heard this story, uh, and he just went like this. He he turned to the side and went. <laughs> 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 so he doesn't take it in, right? Because you can take it into your body and your nervous system. How do you do that, right? So, uh, and so and to have words and ways of speaking basically that don't lock it into a polarized situation. That's what we'd be looking for in terms of response. How do we avoid the polarization? You might say, oh, it, it sounds like you're really angry. Oh, I'm sorry. That, you know, maybe, uh, you know, what I did here, that may have triggered your anger. I'm really sorry. I can, and, and you, you actually would go, you try to be empathic is, the, is part of the key. And that's very hard to get to. Can I be empathic and sense what's really beneath it? Typically, there's going to be some value or some need that's actually quite beautiful. Maybe the person, you know, there's some issue there. So that's a very short version. We could take, uh, you know, a whole period on skillful responses to anger or difficult energy coming towards one. Yeah, thank you. I was wondering what you 
would say um, to the advice, or what your response would be to the advice that Buddha Dasa gives, mm -hmm. uh, referencing uh, the Buddha um, and the, the sutras, he seems to believe that the, the most effective practice when you're in a tight spot, whether yeah. it's a, an idea or a yeah. feeling, is to meditate on voidness. Th yeah. And that's specifically for lay people. That yeah. uh, and the corollary of that, the slogan corollary, of course, is, uh, what is it, Nabe Dhamma, nothing whatsoever should, must, uh, should be clung, clung, clung to. to. Yeah. Um, it strikes me as really something that uproots everything, mm -hmm. that it can be tremendously powerful. And yet, at the same time, one wonders, is this realistic for, mm -hmm. for us? Yeah, so is it, is it uh, possible uh, to respond to, let's say, difficult energies coming toward, towards oneself? Or I think you're also referring just to what goes on within me. It would really be—it's it's a blanket situation. Whatever All disturbances, whatever challenging situation is occurring, can I see it with the you know the word that you quoted was voidness, which is usually uh, translated as emptiness, but and which is again it's a complicated and tricky topic, but it essentially is a version of not taking it personally, mm -hmm. you know. And so, for example. Um, if one could actually be with the flow of anger as if you were a scientist observing your own experience, that would be very much in that spirit. You know, and notice where you get contracted. Notice you know, what, we, what we saw in some of our sessions quite a while ago when we looked at, this, at that sense of how do you really make the sense of emptiness very real and practical? It translates in an immediate way, into seeing, like if you were watching the flow of anger, where can I just be with the flow of anger when I'm meditating, and where do I get stuck? Because every moment that they're stuck, you're not seeing it as a flow. So, you know, maybe a better metaphor for us is where can I just be with this as a flow of experience, and when, where do I get fixated? Where do I say, okay, I can be with that, but, oh, and actually track that. So that's crucial for bringing Again, um, I think we train to see like that uh, with less challenging situations. So you could, we could train with that. Can I just be with the, the flow of um, sensations in my body and occasional thoughts which don't have any charge for me? And can I be in a meditative space where I just watch that as a flow of phenomena? That's exactly the same thing, but you practice seeing that where there's no charge. There's, there's a, a tremendous, what I, what I think is yeah. hard about it is the egolessness that one ne yeah. needs to have, the implications of it. Yeah, yeah well, well uh, to, uh, to take this to a high level in terms of the most difficult situations, high on the... the degree of difficulty scale is extremely challenging. And it's, you know, but like I'm saying, if we want to say, is this practical? It can be practical when we start, and I think all of what we're doing here and have been doing, you know, if we've stayed with this practice for quite a while, is actually to learn to do that with uh, less challenging situations and to learn about it, you know, to be, 
you know, to have an experience they sometimes call the flow experience, right? Where we're in the flow. We've all had experiences like that. Sometimes we might have it in nature, where we don't, where you don't take things quite so personally, and we're just with the flow. And then we gradually bring that capacity out into more difficult things. But we can do that sometimes, again, in the protected environment. We can do that as, as I think I was able to do some with anger. In a protected environment, I could be with pretty intense emotions and not take it so personally and just explore it, right? And, that's, and we can all do that. But we, the, the key to learning is just to be aware of where your edge of learning is. Is my degree, where on the scale of degree of difficulty do I have the capacities to actually stay with it and where is it too much? Right? That's a key point. And all we want to do is stay on the edge of our own learning. It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter at all where it is. And, and there may be uh, learning situations which are just too much at the present moment. And we, you know, we should, uh, where, you know, we should have some strategy for being skillful with that. There may be some relationships where no matter what happens, I'm going to go off balance, right? And, and so forth. Or certain situations with one's loved ones, which bring that up, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe last one, yeah. Oh, the last. I just, um, real quickly, I've been doing a lot of meta practice to, for my ex, and it's been tough, man. Yeah. I, and I'm in a lot of judgment and in a lot of anger. Yeah. And I'm trying to pull out of it. Yeah. But it's, it, and I do in, in meditation practice, but then I whip right back into it. Yeah. And of course, I have judgment about the new boyfriend. I call him the deadhead. And, <laughs> you know, the whole situation. And she, I don't even want to get into it. You can just imagine I have a broken heart. I'm brokenhearted. Yeah. And it's a drag. But I'm, it, you know, it, it gets to be, I'm, I'm even boring myself with this thing right now. But, you know, so, but it's, what I'm saying is my experience is, yes, I get into, I go into meta practice, I'm, you know, and then I just come, then I revert. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying not to revert back yeah, yeah. to anger and judgment. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many people here can relate to some degree through to what's, being reported. Okay. Look around. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, sir, you have been chosen. <laughs> you have been chosen for advanced learning. If you choose to accept this invitation, there are some options. Um, but yeah, first to know that it's very high on the degree of difficulty scale and that sometimes it'll be too much and that's okay. It's not a problem and it's not a need for, there's no need for judgment. Right? That sometimes it'll be like that. It's really good to take breaks. It's really good to do a lot of things which are basically just bringing you back to balance continually and giving you resources. So be with beauty, do whatever just lets you feel really positive, have pleasure, and so forth, you know, be with beauty, nature, you know, um, ways that you just feel uh, non-reactive and positive qualities there, and just have a lot of that coming in. Is you know, this this would be part of that first uh, 
approach for working with challenging situations. Do what you need to do to come back to balance, which could mean a lot of times just really hanging out a lot in as beautiful states as you can find, knowing that that's very crucial. One person I know said, beauty is an antidote to fear. Yeah. It's an antidote to many things. Um, and then, um, yeah, if you, if you can, uh, have some periods of mindfulness with the anger and judgments. But know the difference between when you're able to be mindful and when you're not, when it's too much. Right? Be aware of that distinction. Try to be, and so if you can be mindful with it for three minutes, five minutes, do that. When you notice yourself just in the reactivity, pull back. Not, not helpful to stay there. Right? And um, again, it has the potential for deep learning. It's not just a curse. So, you, so how you hold the perspective of this is quite important. It's not like, oh, this is a bummer, right? That uh, there's actually potential for tremendous learning. Um, the kind of learning you may not want for a while more, right? That kind of, but, there, but if you have the approach, is something I mentioned last time, that the approach of taking everything as learning is a valuable one. And, and, and that's not easy at all. In fact, it's very hard in that, this kind of situation. And then you could work specifically with some of how you might work with anger or with judgment. You know, some of the, some of the specific tools. Uh, heart practice is really crucial. Um, yeah, probably uh, forgiveness practice would be very valuable at certain points, but you can't rush it. So some of the, you know, getting some further guidance on forgiveness could be very, very valuable. Forgiveness for yourself, for your, um, for your ex, for the situation, even for the human condition, you know, for which we have open, vulnerable hearts that can be, uh, go into a lot of pain, right? Just, um, yeah, so those are, those are some beginning, uh, suggestions, really. But I think it's, you know, again, we could probably very profitably stay here for the next hour and explore that one, you know. So it's, thank you for being willing to bring that up. So uh, my suggestion would be to, um, how many of you would like to have a special focus on working with thoughts and emotions next week, including challenging ones, okay? And you can, could listen to this talk and last week's talk and then come back and we'll, um, again, continue to uh, compare notes. So let's end with two things. One is just setting your intention for the next week. If you had to give yourself like a, a one-line guidance, maybe for either a particular situation or for the week as a whole, what would that be?
And then we close in the traditional way by remembering, and I think it can be very clear, that we do this practice of developing the ability to respond rather than be caught in reactivity. We do this for ourselves, but we also very much do this for others, those around us immediately and ultimately for the world. May our time together be of benefit ultimately to all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.